Let's open our Bibles again to the book of Colossians. We are again in Colossians chapter 1 as we continue to see the heart of the apostle for the people of God in the area of Colossae. The heart of the apostle for these dear believers is that they would grow up in Christ. He was not content that they simply came to know Jesus and made a decision for him, but that he wanted them to receive Jesus Christ daily in their walk of faith uh, with him, that they would be rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith, rooted and grounded in Christ. And that is the passion and desire that I have for you and that our elders have for you. And that you would just continue to pray for us because there's a lot of room for all of us to be growing in the carrying out of this kind of faithful ministry for the glory of God. Follow with me as I read Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In him, excuse me, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. How should we do ministry? As a church that is committed, even in its own public mission statement, to make disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, how do we do that? How should we do that? Well, here's a description of the passion and the mindset that drove the apostles' philosophy of ministry. But it's more than that. It is also God's vision for discipleship. It is a vision for disciple-making that requires us to recognize it as a stewardship from God involving intensive labor and love on behalf of others within the mutual experience of suffering. So this is our big idea this morning. Discipleship ministry is a divine gift to be faithfully stewarded for the good and the growth of God's people. That's what we're going to see fleshed out here, so to speak, by the Apostle Paul as he reveals to us how he thinks about ministry. God's goal for every believer is to conform them into the image of Christ. Therefore, we must be committed to a Christ-centered ministry that builds believers on the foundation of the wisdom of Christ 
which is God's truth applied to our hearts and to our lives. Faithfulness in this discipleship ministry is only possible as we depend on the life-changing power of the Holy Spirit for our own progress in Christ and for the spiritual growth of others that we get the privilege to be involved in. So from the apostles' ministry mindset, we draw four admonitions to apply to our own ministry. First, recognize the price of faithful ministry. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, Paul says. Paul believed that the price of authentic discipleship ministry is a willingness to endure suffering on behalf of others. And this requires an attachment to people. That's what we're going to see throughout here, that discipleship is an alongside one another ministry. The American church is content to have classes and hold seminars, and when we're done, we say, we have discipled people. But that's only one small piece of the discipleship puzzle. True discipleship involves getting involved in each other's lives and walking through life together. Biblical disciple makers do life with other people. And this includes suffering. It involves suffering together in a sin-sick world. And that's where we need to grow in transparency and honesty and humility with one another as we suffer. Some of us, when we suffer, are too proud to ask for help. We like to be the helpers, but never the ones being helped. And that pride hinders the body growth and function that is supposed to happen in the life of the church. Suffering is a common ground, you might say, that, that serves to make vital connections to one another. And it also opens doors to the comfort of Christ. In Paul's case, he is writing this letter from a prison in Rome. Epaphras has traveled there to visit him and to report on the progress that these believers are making in the territory of Asia Minor. And as we learned before, uh, Paul was very encouraged by what he heard about these disciples, that they were growing in faith and love and, and they were walking with the Lord. But he was also very concerned because he was hearing about how heresy and bondage to man-made traditions and teaching w- were squelching the freshness of the newness of their life in Christ. And so he writes this letter and has it delivered by his fellow bondservant in the Lord. Chapter 4, verse 7, identifies this man as Tychicus. Paul felt daily pressure upon his heart for the needs, the spiritual needs of those in the churches that he served. And he rejoiced in suffering because he knew that suffering 
stimulates spiritual growth. Suffering is God's primary tool for our sanctification. It is how he refines our faith. It is how he makes us aware of things we did not see in our hearts and in our lives that we need to deal with. It is a mercy from God. So it's important to recognize that Paul's suffering here is is all-encompassing. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church. The mental and physical and emotional suffering that Paul endured that all falls under that category of pressure that he spoke of to the Corinthians is, is driving him to depend upon Christ and then to show those he served how to depend upon him as well. I want you to notice that suffering empowers discipleship in at least three ways. And I'm just going to illustrate this from other letters of Paul. Um, But first, notice that suffering leads to a deeper, more lasting growth. Notice he says in verse 24, Paul chose to find his joy in the midst of suffering because he knew it would benefit those to whom he ministered. He says, it is for your sake. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Not only because of what the suffering is doing in me and my own sanctification, but how that then is going to have a spillover effect in your life. Paul was committed to doing his share on behalf of Christ's body, he says, the church, despite his own personal trials. Robert Gamaki says this, Christ suffered in death to save the church, and now Paul suffered in life to spare it. Paul understood that real-life ministry to real-life sinners was not uh, a simple career choice. It was the very calling of God upon his heart that he could not let go of. God grabbed his heart with the ministry and Therefore, Paul couldn't let go of the ministry because his heart grabbed it too. And it required his very life. He required everything in him because it's what God appointed for him, which includes suffering. We are reminded of this in Acts chapter 9 when we see how immediately following his conversion, Paul's conversion, Jesus says this, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. Listen, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Paul knew from the get-go, like some of the Old Testament prophets, from, the very, from their very calling from God, your life calling is going to include suffering. And Paul embraced that. He didn't fight against it. He embraced it because he knew what it would do for him in conforming him to Christ and then thus being more able to help other people. So notice it says in verse 24 that Paul's joy and willingness 
to suffer for the sake of the church springs from his desire to fill up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Now, the word lacking does not mean the sufferings of Christ are insufficient for salvation. It's not what he's talking about. But rather that there is much more suffering that has to take place on the part of followers of Christ so that the gospel can be taken to all and that the earth can see the mercy and kindness and grace of God through living witnesses. I remember someone years ago said, you know, why didn't God just, you know, put John 3.16, write it in the sky? You know, that would just take care of it for all of us. Well, because God is a personal God who works through persons to reach other persons. And one of the ways he does that is through our suffering, causing Christ to be magnified through our suffering. John Piper explains it this way, Christ's afflictions are not lacking in their atoning sufficiency, in other words, their ability to atone for our sin. They are lacking in that they are not known and felt by people who were not at the cross. Paul dedicates himself to not only carry the message of those sufferings to the nations, but also to suffer with Christ and for Christ in such a way that what people see are Christ's sufferings. In this way, he follows the pattern of Christ by laying down his life for the life of the church. So as servants of Christ suffer for his name, the message of the cross then continues to be spread. This was true in Philippi. We went through Philippians a number of years ago, so... I don't expect you to remember this, but try to remember (laughs) that through the imprisonment of Paul, the whole guard, all the guards in the prison got saved. It was through his suffering that the gospel spread. So as servants of Christ suffer for his name and for his sake, the message of the cross continues to be proclaimed. Number two, suffering helps you to become a more authentic comforter. I think of the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we will be able to comfort those who in any affliction, who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So Paul rejoiced in his sufferings because he knew that God was using them to produce growth in his own life as a receiver of the comfort of God, which then made him a conduit of God's comfort. Please understand that when you are suffering and God comforts you through his word and through his people, That comfort is not a cul-de-sac. Okay? It's not, it doesn't end with you. Oh, the comfort comes to me, and now it's mine, and I keep it for myself. It's not a cul-de-sac. It's a conduit. God is comforting you because he has other people for you then to comfort with the same comfort that he comforted you with. So don't be stingy with the comfort of God. 
If God has comforted you through certain trials, don't keep that to yourself. Tell others that they might be comforted by the comfort of God. So suffering enhances ministry because it produces this common ground by which we can relate to one another. We enter into each other's troubles and together we endure suffering. So suffering helps us to become more authentic comforters. Why? Because it shows others that we've been there. We've been there. third way that suffering helps ministry is that suffering keeps you from exalting yourself. Suffering has a unique way of slaying our pride. Uh, The prideful ways that we think, the prideful ways of our heart that are still hidden to us. Suffering has a way of exposing that to us so that we can repent and become humble. This is what Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He says, because I had these surpassing great revelations of the third heaven, God gave me a thorn in the flesh. It was delivered to me by Satan, came ultimately from God, and it was for the purpose of keeping me from exalting myself. God loved Paul and had a plan for his ministry, so much so, that he, in his sovereignty, had the devil himself be the delivery boy of a thorn in the flesh, a form of suffering that, would, that Paul would have to endure for the rest of his life. He begged God, take it away three times. Take it away, Lord. God said no. Like Jacob had the limp after meeting God, so Paul would have this limp We don't know what kind of limp it was, physical, mental, emotional. It doesn't matter, and that's what I love about about that passage of Scripture because it can apply to any thorn in the flesh that we experience. Please understand that with the strength of Christ, he can accomplish more through us when we have a limp than when we have it all together. And some of you think, well, God can't use me because I don't have it all together. You're thinking wrongly about that. One of the very reasons why he can use you and will use you is because of your limp. We are together limping through the Christian life. So stop pretending you have it all together. You know you don't. And I know I don't. So let's help one another. Let's suffer together for the glory of God. And through that suffering, God humbles us and therefore makes us more useful to him. Spurgeon said it this way, Our God takes care always to have security that if he works a great work by us, we shall not appropriate the glory of it to ourselves. In other words, if God wants to do a great work through us, he's going to also do something else so that we don't take the glory for it. 
he brings us down lower and lower in our own esteem. Some trumpets, he says, are so stuffed with self that God cannot blow through them. You may rest quite certain that if God honors a man in public, he takes him aside privately and flogs him well. Otherwise, he would get elevated and proud, and God will not have that. So if you want God to use you in ministry in greater and greater ways, you better be honestly prepared for suffering, because that's how God humbles us and makes us more useful to him. So that's the price of ministry. The price of ministry is suffering. Secondly, notice that there is another admonition we're drawing from this, and that is to realign with the personality of faithful ministry. What we see here is Paul's personality of ministry, Um, what he's like as a minister of the gospel, what he's like as a disciple-maker. And he describes his disciple-making ministry in seven ways. First, it's responsible. Faithful ministry is responsible. Look at verse 25, of which, he's talking about the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. Paul viewed stewardship not as an entitlement, but as a stewardship from God. A responsibility, that's what the word stewardship means. It means to have the responsibility and authority and obligation of a household slave. According to scripture, ministers of the gospel are household slaves. Have this responsibility of being good stewards. And so Paul had been called to this place of responsibility in God's house and therefore he was concerned about completing his work. He knew that he was merely an under-shepherd of God's flock who was one day going to give an account to the chief shepherd. And he wanted to be faithful. He wanted to have taken care of this stewardship with faithfulness. And yet, like most of us, Paul struggled with the fear of man, as Proverbs warns us. The fear of man is a snare, a trap. It's a trap that enslaves us to the opinions of others. But then he goes on to say, he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. I find it encouraging, though, that later in Paul's life in Galatians, by the time he wrote uh, the book of Galatians, he could see that he was making progress uh, in that area of his life, and he was able to testify to them, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So Paul always had people trying to sway him in the way that he ought to do ministry. And Paul was convinced that this is the way to do ministry, and he was going to fear God and not fear man. So faithful disciple-makers understand that you cannot be a a God-pleaser and a man-pleaser at the same time. It's one or the other. 
faithful servant approaches every aspect of his calling responsibly according to the stewardship from God. Secondly, notice faithful ministry is servant-like. It is for the sake of his body, he says in verse 24. And in verse 25, it was given, this stewardship was given to me from God for you. So Paul knew that his ministry wasn't for himself. His ministry was for the church. And and by doing this, he is following the example of Jesus, his master. If you remember from John 13, how the Lord Jesus entered the house and he picked up the pitcher and the towel and he washed the filthy feet of his argumentative disciples. And then he said, go and do likewise. This is my model of servanthood. Modeled by the one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Thirdly, faithful ministry is word-saturated. It was given to me for you, verse 25, to make the word of God fully known. To make the word of God fully known. So Paul had confidence in the power of the Holy Spirit to work through the written word of God to accomplish the spiritual growth and sanctification of the people that he served. He didn't have to come up with gimmicks and follow the latest trends. He just had to keep doing what God told him to do. This stewardship is the word of God itself, he's saying. And the substance of this teaching, he says in verse 26, is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. He's talking about the fullness of the gospel. The mystery in the New Testament letters refers to something that that was unknown in the past, but God has now revealed And so specifically in this context, you see this in verse 27. What is this mystery? This mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the mystery. (laughs) Wow. That Christ is in you as a believer and you are in Christ as a believer. Could there be anything so amazing for us to ponder? Christ is in us, and we are in him. This is the mystery that Paul preached. Fourthly, faithful ministry is Christ-centered. Look at verse 28. We proclaim him. Him we proclaim. Christ we proclaim. And that word proclaim is in the tense of the Greek language, which refers to continual action. Never stops, just keeps going. This is what Paul committed himself to do constantly. Through his preaching, through his writing, through his personal interactions with people, he was exalting Christ. So it was his habit, we could say, to announce Christ as being 
the answer, the solution to every sin struggle as well as the hope and strength that we need for suffering. It's Christ. Paul used the written word of God to draw attention to the living word of God, Jesus Christ. He ruthlessly resisted becoming a trendy preacher or succumbing to preaching worldly philosophy and human reasoning. Reasoning. He stuck with what was his stewardship, which was the word of God. And he wanted to apply that to people's lives that they would grow and become complete in Christ. From the 1930s to the 1960s, Welsh pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones served as the pastor of Westminster Chapel in London. And it was near the end of his public ministry when he became too ill to uh, serve in the same capacity. He began writing a lot more than he had done before. And he uh, saw this trend happening in evangelicalism. And he wrote this, philosophy has always been the cause of the church going astray. For philosophy means ultimately a trusting to human reason and human understanding. And that's one of the chief things Paul's dealing with in Colossians. We'll see that in chapter 2. But when this happens, Christians are deceived through distraction. They're deceived through distraction. Their focus is shifted from the person of Jesus Christ as the only source of their salvation and also the only means of their sanctification. And so they look, start looking for other things to fix themselves. Paul preached Christ. Paul announced Christ. He ministered Christ to his people. David Paulison explains this so well. He says, truth mediates a person, a working redeemer. To be human is to love a savior, father, master, and Lord. Instead of psychopathology and syndromes, we see sins against this person, and we see sufferings that are trials, revealing our need for a true deliverer and refuge. Paul announced Christ as what they needed. They needed to cultivate their growing relationship with Christ. They needed to abide in Christ. They needed to understand that Christ was in them and they were in Christ. And so it's through this obedient, humble faith in Jesus as our Redeemer and the one who sanctifies us, that we continue to make progress in him. Notice another quality of this ministry is that faithful ministry is corrective. It's corrective. We proclaim, and we proclaim, warning everyone. Warning comes from the Greek word that means warning. Isn't that interesting? (laughs) 
means instruction through warning. Warning through instruction. So this was part of Paul's public ministry of the word, but no doubt it was also part of his private ministry of the word. We see this um, when he is saying goodbye to the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. He's wrapping up a three-year ministry with them. And, and he says that he did not cease to admonish each one with tears. I love that. The heart of the apostle was so drawn to his people, the people whom God gave him to serve. He just wanted their growth in Christ so badly. He wept for them. And then faithful ministry is theological. Teaching, he uses the word, and teaching. From that word, we get the word doctrine. So there's a doctrinal emphasis to faithful disciple-making ministry, teaching, doctrine, helping disciples to think theologically. Sadly, that has lost a big emphasis in today's churches. Instead, there's a noticeable shift away from theology to therapy and self-help coaching from the pulpit. I'm not a self-help speaker. I don't get up here every Sunday to give you a TED Talk, as moving as some of those are. I get up here every Sunday morning to be a steward of the Word of God, to open it for you. You might see the riches of Jesus and who you are in him. So faithful ministry does care about doctrine. It's not just about experience. It's about laying a rock-solid foundation of the word of God. And then finally, we see faithful ministry is wisdom-filled. With all wisdom. With all wisdom. The word wisdom, Sophia, means uh, that which is related to goodness. It's wisdom that only the good can possess. And by choosing this word, what Paul is doing is he is referring to the way he carried out his ministry, the manner in which he carried out the stewardship of the word. He sought always to reflect the grace and goodness of God in how he taught and confronted and counseled and preached to those whom God gave to him. This kind of wisdom recognizes that not all disciples are ready for equal doses of theological truth. I mean, Jesus himself said this to his disciples, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. A wise disciple maker assesses where that person is at. And that's where you begin to work with them. So personal discipleship is person specific. It's caring about where that person is at in their life and in their journey 
what has happened to them in their past, what is happening in their present, and so that we might take them and show them what will be their future in Christ. This is wisdom. We don't just back up and unload the dump truck. I've said this before, but 25 years ago or so, I was the kind of uh, biblical counselor that I call it, I was a dump truck counselor. I just kind of back up and beep, 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 unload. Now it's your deal to deal with what I just gave you. God quickly showed me that that isn't biblical ministry. That was easing my conscience, making me feel good. Oh, there, I told them what they need. I guess we'll just trust the Holy Spirit to deal with the rest. No, there's, there's a love and a compassion and a commitment that happens on the relational level. That's wisdom. No two people are the same. Think of how God works with us, such mercy and patience. So we need to use every word that we speak to help uh, others, to correct them when needed, but to, to help them to see the glory of Christ as being all that they need. Third admonition that we see here is reach toward the purpose of faithful ministry. What is the purpose? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. Maturity. The word means complete. Mature. Having fulfilled its goal. It's a a word that distinguishes adults from children. Paul wanted them to grow up in the Lord Sometimes this word is translated perfect, but it does not imply perfectionism. There's a difference. Perfect, complete, that's the goal. That's what we're working toward in Christ. But that's not perfectionism. So the embodiment of our completeness, Paul is saying, is Christ-likeness. <laughs> that's what he's saying. He wants to present everyone mature in Christ. This, Paul says in Ephesians 4, is the goal of the church, to present a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That's our goal. And then fourthly, notice verse 29, rely upon the power for faithful ministry. The power comes from Christ. The power comes from the indwelling Holy Spirit, Look at the need for the power here in verse 29, for this I toil. This word paints a picture of utter exhaustion. It comes from the word that means to grow weary. Paul is so determined to meet his goal of presenting believers spiritually mature in Christ that he is willing to work to the point of physical, mental, and emotional exhaustion. That's the point. Simon Peter uses the same word when he says to Jesus, Master, we've worked all night and caught nothing. 
Same word is used by Paul when he says to Timothy, suffer hardship. So the overwhelming picture of ministry in the letters of Paul is that it is not one of ease and comfort and a secure retirement package. It is toil. One of the reasons it's toil is because of opposition. There is more spiritual warfare in ministry than you have any idea of and that I don't even fully grasp. Struggling, he says. That's a word that refers to a wrestling match. Ministry sometimes feels like a wrestling match. Struggling. Because there's opposition. Spiritual opposition. Invisible opposition from the forces of evil. Visible opposition. It's toil. It's struggling. Yet Paul ends the verse with such encouragement. With all his energy, I toil with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Whose energy? The energy of Christ. Why? Because Christ has given to us his spirit. His spirit indwells us as believers. And he is the one who will empower us for ministry. And we can be confident that, that God is going to reach his goal He's going to finish his work. In every believer, he started a good work. And he's going to bring it to completion. And the challenge for us today is, how are we going to be a part of that process? This is a beautiful picture of what discipleship ministry looks like. Let's pray. Father, thanks for reminding us today of what it looks like to help others to grow toward maturity in Christ. Lord, I'm so grateful for the uh, things that you are continuing to teach me and ways that you're sanctifying me. And Lord, everyone in this church, Father, I thank you for how you are using your word to challenge our thinking, to renew our minds, to shift the affections of our hearts, to bring our wills into a deeper level of abandoned submission to you. God, we thank you for this incredible good work that you've begun in us. Father, we give you glory for the Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, the sinless one, God-man who died in our place on the cross, rose from the dead three days later to give eternal life to any kind of sinner who will open their hands and receive the gift of eternal life. God, do the work in our hearts that you know needs to be done. For the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.